Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Something will happen. <laughs> and I, just, I thought that was a, I, I love that story because it's, Undramatic and it's simple and it's got a, a strong point to it. Yeah, it's a Zen Cohen for travelers in a way, right? Yeah, something will happen. <laughs> exactly. Maybe bad, maybe good. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> that was a clip from the conversation you'll hear today with Rupert Gray, who spent six months traveling eight thousand miles through India in a nineteen thirties. Rolls Royce with his wife. Who does that? <laughs> this journey was turned into a documentary film called Romantic Road, which I can highly recommend. I watched it prior to the interview. And we discuss their choice as a British couple to travel through India in a vintage Rolls Royce, which in some ways is the ultimate symbol of wealth, right? It can be a reminder of colonialism. How would that be received in India? We dig into it. You'll also hear the life lesson that a New Zealand trucker taught him when he was picked up as a hitchhiker early in his travels, and it's something that he carried with him for the rest of his life. I love this little bit of uh, blunt wisdom, shall we say. We discuss the value of continuing to pursue your passions no matter what anybody says to you, how a guy from rural England, ended up making a film produced by Sharon Stone. I mean, how does that happen? Talking about living a full life, getting out of your comfort zone, staying out of your comfort zone. Rupert certainly has managed to do that in his own life, and he's got plenty of stories to tell, and you're going to hear some of them today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, it's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Quick reminder before we get into today's interview that you are not alone. You're part of a global listening community here at Zero to Travel. Any new listeners, I want to welcome you. And for those of you that are back for the 10th or the 100th time, welcome back. And really, truly appreciate your presence here. In fact, I'm going to share a shout out on the backside of this interview 
to somebody in this listening community and an idea. If you need a little accountability, I got your back. I'll share what that's all about later on. First, this wonderful conversation with Rupert Gray. Rupert has traveled on foot, elephant, camel, horseback, dugout, canoe, bush plane, dog sled, you name it. Vintage Rolls Royce. (laughs) This guy has seen a lot and done a lot and he's got charisma to boot. Something about the guy, you can just tell he's one of these guys that's, you know, lived a full life and he's got something about him that you just, you want to hear his stories and you're going to hear them (laughs) today. Right now it starts off with a book recommendation that changed his life and we go from there. So hope you enjoy the conversation. One last reminder, if you want to keep a touch off the podcast, I send out a free newsletter packed with travel goodies over at zerototravel.com slash newsletter that goes out each week. You can sign up over there to keep in touch. Thanks for listening and enjoy my chat with Rupert. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Cheers. Right, Jason, I got you on a big screen. I'm sorry you have to have me on the big screen. (laughs) (laughs) You look all right to me, Jason. (laughs) Is that your office there, or what what am I looking at? You're looking at a library I built uh, out of storm timber in 1991. I want a library like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work, Jason. It took me, uh, me and seven other guys living in the field in wagons. Uh, It took us six months. Six months, that okay. That didn't include the thatch roof. What is your most treasured book back there on the shelf, would you say? That's a hell of a question to come up with an immediate answer. Okay, mm-hmm. let me try one off. I might appeal to you. The Wind of the Willows. What is it about that book? Oh, I see you're, I see you're pulling it off the shelf right, right now there, yeah. The uh, 30s, and it starts off, uh, it's, a, it's a children's book. Okay. Written for 12-year-olds. Uh, and it's one of the first books my parents read to me. It's about a, about about Mr. Toad uh, and his two friends, the the mole and the rat, uh, and they go on an expedition in a caravan. They take their horse and they ride it all around the beautiful English lanes for their horse-drawn cart, having a wonderful, magical time. Uh, and it all comes to grief when a Rolls Royce comes charging down the road too fast, so their cart gets thrown into the ditch. But our hero, Mr. Toad. Looks at that rose, he said, my God, he said, I, all my life, that's what I wanted. So he changes, <laughs> he buys the fastest car he can find, and he goes another expedition. <laughs> and it's a wonderful story. Um, it's, a, it's a major cultural phenomenon over here. It's in plays and films and so on. Okay. Uh, and it, it's a story about uh, the magic of life on the road and growing up and finding your feet and making mistakes uh, and laughing. Uh, oh, it's just full of good life. Can, can you tell me the title one more time? The Wind in the Willows. The Wind in the Willows. Okay. This sounds like it was a an inspiration early on for you. Yeah. No, it was. That's uh, sort yeah. of why I, I mentioned it. I, I wrote an article for uh, the Travelers Club, which is a, a posh club in, uh, in London. And they wanted me to write. They heard that I had a library in my roles. Uh, and they wanted me to write an article on the library. The library was just a, a library box. It was a box of 50 books. Then mm-hmm. we had... We chose for our journey, six-month journey around India, and one of them was Wind of the Willows. Well, I mean, we're going to get into the into the journey today, of course. It's hard to know where to begin. I'm, I guess I'm just wondering about your marriage. How long have you been married, and what's your secret? Because I am now coming up on 10 years, so 
I got to pull everybody's secrets here, get the marriage hack so I keep this thing going. <laughs> Frankie, well, we married in 1977. Uh, we met in 1970, uh, no, it didn't, in 1969 uh, at a dinner party in Elizabeth Manor House in Gloucestershire. Uh, and we knew a lot about each other beforehand because we had a mutual friend. We'd both known most of our lives, mm. but we'd never met. And for reasons that I've forgotten, I pitched up as, dressed as Charles I, complete with wig and all the rest of the paraphernalia. Uh, and she totally ignored that. And we fell into a, uh, uh, an argument uh, that lasted all that evening about the quality of British justice and whether it was an effective system for a society <laughs> like Britain. And she said it wasn't, and I said it was, and we're still arguing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so was that the attraction there? Somebody that could, could argue with you for that long? <laughs> the attraction took some... Uh, I did went off around the world for three years. I didn't see her again for another three, four years. Really? Okay. Uh, and um, and I remember too, but you know, I, there were lots of other bits of life going on. Yeah. Uh, and then we re-met again when I, she came to stay in the house I was in in London. Uh, again, owned by the same uh, friend who introduced mm -hmm. us. Okay. And she came to the door in a great, huge great coat with a big trunk. She'd come down from Yorkshire. Her father was a vet in Yorkshire, uh, and uh, and I opened the door and it's wrong. I'd just come back from the South Pacific. And so we could not have been more different, and it just worked in the way these things do. Mm. And we've done many, many great journeys together, including with our children. How old were you at that time after three years traveling around the world? Were you solo traveling, or what, what was that all about? I set off uh, after I left university. In fact, I was on the plane to Canada the night I finished the day on which I finished my exams. Mm. I couldn't wait to get out. Uh, uh, and I met a guy in Toronto who offered me a job in Fiji Islands, purely by chance. Just mm. walked in the door uh, of a company with uh, exploration in the title. So I ended up being, being a prospector for a year and a half in the Fiji Islands, uh, prospecting for copper uh, and working with Fijians living in the bush. Uh, and having a, uh, an extraordinary, it was a life-changing time. Yeah. And then I went on and traveled for another year and a half, wandering through New Zealand, walking the mountains, uh, working in the Great Sandy Desert in Australia, uh, wandering through Bali and smoking marijuana, uh, up to the Himalayas and walking through the valleys, the Great Valleys up to Annapurna, to uh, Kabul, where I... Uh, smoked a lot of marijuana sitting in the market, that great marketplace in Kabul, as it then was. And then I got home. Back to England. Back to England. And finished my training as a lawyer. How was it getting back into life in England after a journey like that? How, it was, how do you. It, it was great. You I were just, ready to come home. Well, I was hungry for what England had to offer. I'd seen what other places had to offer. And, and I, 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 I had a lot of friends, and I ended up by walking in the English hills, going to the grandest operas imaginable, going to posh dinner parties, uh, meeting interesting people, writing a few articles for newspapers, mm. uh, and training as a lawyer. Uh, the law was pretty boring, but uh, after a few years, I worked out what it, what it was I wanted to do as a lawyer. It took me a little while. Yeah. I mean, a trip that took place so long ago, I'm wondering, do you think that the experiences you had then still impact your life to this day? And if so, how? Yes. I think the magic moment for me was when I was hitchhiking in New Zealand, uh, down the the, uh, the west coast of the South Island, and uh, and I got picked up by a uh, by a truck, uh, and uh, and I stood in the back. It was a beautiful day, and I just come. I just left Fiji. I had plenty of money, 
total freedom. Nobody in the world who knew me knew where I was. I was totally independent yeah. um, uh, and self-sufficient. And I had money. I, had, I was fit. I was young. Uh, and, uh, and then I got in the cab. I stood in the back most of the journey. Uh, and I got in the cab, and we talked for two and a half hours. He talked about his life. He was 50. He was a truckie. Uh, and I talked about mine up to that date. And at the end of it, uh, as I stepped down the cab, and it was one of those right high off the ground cabs. Um, and uh, as my nose was at a level with the seat, he put his hand over and shook me by the hand. And he said, I got some advice to you, young man, he said. He said, um, the thing about life, he said, is to bite off more than you can chew and chew like fuck. <laughs> and, and that uh, that just was what it was about. And that's what I did. I just grabbed everything and, and, and made the best of it. And, uh, and I used that. I gave a lecture. I did quite a lot of lecturing. And I gave a lecture to quite a well-known public school oh, about five years ago, I suppose. Uh, and having asked the permission of the headmaster to use a swear word, I ended my lecture on that note, and they just loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been chewing ever since, haven't you? I've been chewing ever since, and I'm still struggling. <laughs> <laughs> you're still chewing i mean i watched the documentary romantic road and i know you have the book coming out uh which yeah. we'll be talking about as well your homage to uh bangladesh uh where where did your connection with indian bangladesh come from here why why do you feel so connected to this part of the world there are two reasons i think it best uh, is the best way of summing it up uh my grandfather um, uh, practiced as a lawyer in India. He was the first ever English barrister to practice in Urdu. Um, that was in the, believe it or not, it was in the 1890s, 1880s. Mm. My, my grandfather was born in 1855, which I still find hard to believe. Um, uh, and, I, uh, and my father fought the war in India. Well, he didn't fight the war because he was a doctor. But he was in India throughout the war. And uh, uh, and importantly, he started from what's now Bangladesh, which was then, of course, India, uh, as to, to set up the um, the first medical center in the Burma landings. Uh, as the battle was raging around him, he was setting up a medical center. And I grew up with those stories. They weren't a big part of my life, but they were very there. Uh, and so and he, his stories are about India, and so I had a natural interest in it. And then I read Kipling, which was... Uh, when I was growing up, was uh, one of the major books of, of my of my youth. Uh, so next day, John from the Wind in the Willows, um, uh, and the story of Kim is still one of the great stories in the English language. Um, it's about a, a half Indian boy who grows up uh, in the in the in between the wars, um, uh, and th and that's and the Jungle Books, and that sparked my imagination to go there. Mm. Uh, and so that's where I went on the way back home in 1969. And of course, I just loved it. 1970. Yeah. Okay. When your dad was spending time in India, he was, because I remember in the movie also you mentioned he being there for five years. Was that the time you were referring to? Or were you a child? Did he spend any time there away from you guys when you no. were growing up? No, you were all no, together. Uh, I was conceived the night he got back from the war. Yeah. Okay. I see a lot of themes in your life with some of the early inspiration with the with the children's book you mentioned and wanting to explore and then and then traveling and then connecting to a place that your father had spent time in, a lot of mm -hmm. time in. It sounds like a lot of that just translated into the actions you took as a traveler and and and, and the choices you made in life later on where to explore and and where to dive in. And I know one of your your daughters made some appearances in the movie and uh one of them mentioned that you guys would take some big risks on trips as children. 
So I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, as a guy who has two kids, two young kids, myself, mine are five and seven right now. But yeah, I'm just curious. Perfect age for traveling, Jason. Yeah. No, you, get, you get onto it. You will. I know you will. <laughs> it's great. I mean, we we just took a road trip this summer, but I wanted to hear about some of the family travel and and some of those risks that they're referring to. <laughs> What what are some of the things you did? What, and what did you want to do? What did you want to expose them to? Like what was the the motivation to take them on the road in, in this way? It was two things. First of all, of course, we wanted to do it, and I in particular wanted to do it. Right. Um because traveling had been uh, I mean the, the journeys to the the nether regions of the earth have been a part of my life since I can remember. Yeah. Uh, so and I couldn't see any particularly good reason to stop doing it just because I had a bunch of kids about the place. Um <laughs> Uh, and Jan wasn't in the same. She was of the same mind, but uh, you know, she wasn't a. Uh, she hadn't been a traveler until she met me, uh, but she loved our journeys together. So we were we were very keen on the children's effect, the children taking the children, and I thought that. Um, and this is a very interesting question because it leads to another point. It always struck me that the impressions that you, uh, that life makes on you when you're uh, sort of five to eight to ten, do have a lingering impression throughout your life, one way or another, some for bad, some for good. Um, uh, and we did have some some pretty interesting times and some pretty unusual times traveling together. We didn't go in a car. We were uh, we, we mainly did river journeys in places like Borneo, and, um, uh, uh, and uh, we rode elephants up the banks of the Mekong. Um, we took canoe trips in the Rockies, um, all sorts of things like that. My uh, second daughter, uh, uh, and I only mentioned her, but they're all amazing. But uh, she's one who actually mentioned it in a public framework when she was giving. She's quite a well-known now um, philosopher and uh, theologian, majoring on the environment um, uh, and the values that we need to uh, adhere to if we're going to preserve the environment. Mm. Um, and she gave a lecture in the Royal Geographical Society, which you'll know about as a traveler. It's quite a a major stage. Yeah. Uh, I've been very involved with society for a long time. In fact, I was their lawyer for years. Um, and she gave a lecture about her, about uh, the environment. And she started by saying, it all started for me in Borneo when I was two and a half. Really? And she showed a picture, a black and white picture I'd taken of her in Borneo, um, in the destroyed jungle, because that's what we saw. Yeah. Uh, just failed trees everywhere and she's walking down through this destroyed landscape on this mud road as a child of, of just over two she was like uh so that that influenced my life so it it did work is the answer to your question yeah wow what, two and a half that's incredible it is and and she mentioned other journeys uh, later journeys um she didn't remember that much about warrior but that image for her spoke of her life as a child and how it influenced her thinking and changed her direction um, as she grew up. You know, as a parent, hearing that story is motivating because you, you do want to get your kids out and explore. And it's also terrifying because it's like, what are the things I'm going to do that are going to stick with them? The bad things, right? <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, we did have we did have one or two hairy moments, which they still talk about. I mean, they nearly got killed by a, a, runny, a runaway elephant and they really? got swept off. As the elephant charged through the jungle, uh, and we were a million miles from anywhere, uh, and we thank God they were all right. But it, it looked as though they weren't at first. Really, mm. what was that moment like for you? It must have been, you know, when you have moments of high drama like that, uh, where you don't quite know, we don't have any idea what's going to happen next. You just deal with it. Yeah, um, you know, I picked her up. She said she was her chest had been crushed. She thought it broken all her ribs. She was eight, 
Was she eight? No, oh, no, she was younger than that. No, she's older than that. That was afterwards. Uh, she was um, 12, I guess. Anyway, uh, and I thought, well, she broke her ribs. Okay, we've got to make a stretcher and get her out of here. And in fact, she happens. And after a few minutes, she was just very, very winded. Yeah, right. Um, and then we got attacked by a bunch of hornets and, the, uh, and uh, one of the elephants, another one went berserk with two children and disappeared for the whole day. And we found them in a clearing the jungle that night. So there were moments when you thought, what the hell am I bloody doing? Um, uh, but somehow it all worked in the end. And they still talk about that. That's the dinner party story they now tell. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that the case with travel, right? You never tell the... Uh, it's, always, it's always about the, the horror... Moments, it is, you know, it, it is, and you have to wait a few years. The horror right. recedes. Yeah. Uh, you survived. You're alive, yeah. uh, and then the story takes on a life of its own. Once you push past the trauma, it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> absolutely, exactly right. Well, I mean, moments like this that you described, uh, you said, you know, these are the moments you just kind of you don't know what's going to happen, and you kind of don't know where things are going. I mean, that is part of the. I don't want to say the rush. But isn't that part of the reason why we put ourselves out of our comfort zone to confront those uncomfortable feelings? Mm -hmm. Because what you've done, and we can talk about the trip specifically that you took, the 5,000 mile journey in the, in the 1930s Rolls Royce across India and Bangladesh with your wife. Mm -hmm. Love the movie, by the way. But, you know, even doing a, a trip like that, I mean, it's, I would say the stereotype would be that as you get older, you don't take these kind of trips where you don't know what's going to happen or what you're what's in store and that is certainly not the case with this there's a lot to unpack here but yeah i'm just curious like as as a traveler as an adventurer as an explorer why do you enjoy getting uncomfortable in that way you personally i think that's a difficult I was going to say it's not the right question, which doesn't sound very polite um uh, i think your earlier question was good um uh, which is why um, is that why you do it? Because you get uncomfortable, because you uh, get a, an adrenaline, an adrenaline high right. on the on the risk. Uh, and I, I think the answer for me is, is no. That's not why I do it. I do it um, because I'm hungry to see every bit of life you can lay your hands on. Um, uh, and if you're going to see the great bits of life and uncover the secrets that you are knowingly or unknowingly looking for. Mm -hmm. then you have to take risks. It's part and parcel of the wider picture which you want to be a part of. Uh, and I think that was the case for me. The risk we took, um, that was one of them, and there was another one, one of the, uh, the youngest child, Rose, got really bad asthma in a remote village in a remote island in Fiji but that was, there was no contact with the outside world. You had to walk three miles to get to a radio. And she really was quite, ill. Uh, uh, I mean, we would have taken her to the hospital if there was one. I remember thinking, this is really very foolish. and It worried me a lot. But it sort of worked. I think it's, it's not an easy one to answer that. But I think it's an acceptance of risk rather than a looking for it. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by US Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday. 
in Norway. Not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite street streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there. And that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself. And that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, you guys, as a couple, had to get on board with the accepting some of those risks, let's call them, uh, going on a trip like this. What was that conversation like with Jan and when you guys discussed sort of the... I don't know how you came up with this idea to do this and then turning it into a movie and everything. That's a whole other question and a book and all. But, you know, making the decision to to travel in the way you did. When I first got the synopsis of what you guys have done, I was thinking, well, this is quite a bold uh, thing to do, to drive in the Rolls Royce after, you know, the the history of uh, colonialism. And in some ways, you could see a, a Rolls Royce like that. Like, you don't know how people are going to see it, right? It, it, I know you have a history with the car and, and you can explain a, a bit about that. But in some ways, I suppose it could function as the ultimate symbol of wealth that could therefore easily represent colonialism and could be considered a slap in the face to some people. That was like sort of the first thought I had of, well, that that could be perceived that way. You don't really know how it's going to be perceived. And you guys even talked about that in the movie and how mm. you didn't really know how people are going to going to react. You know, in the end, I think what, what it was, was it created conversation and connection in, in a positive way. But, you know, I'm just curious going into the trip. How did you think about that? What were the discussions like about should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? I'm just curious what your mindset was. 
it's a good question. It was two questions. Um, the first one was in relation to traveling with the children and the risks that that involved. Yeah. And, I, uh, and I'll come back to the, uh, the Indian journey uh, in a second. Um, uh, I think the way Jan and I worked it out together was that we both realized this is what we would like to do. And we thought the benefits for us and for the children were worth, worth taking risks for. Um, but having said that, we were very careful to assess the risks um, as uh, as accurately as we could. And having assessed the risk, we then took steps to ensure that we could um, uh, allay the risks as far as we could. But we were very careful about the, the medical supplies that we took with us. Uh, when Rose developed asthma, we actually had a, an, a, a pedal machine that you could use for um uh, for asthma, which you would normally have in a hospital. So we, we had a rucksack for carrying that when we were in the remote places. So we were quite careful at assessing risk um, and, uh, and doing all the research that we needed to do in order to be able to make that assessment valid. Mm. Um, uh, and here we are 30 years later, all alive and well. So I guess we got that <laughs> roughly right. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that must be the lawyer training, right? Isn't that risk assessment is a big part of being a lawyer? You're, like, you're, you're, you're not far wrong, except I always felt the jam was a better assessment risk than I was and more realistic. And I said, oh, I don't worry about that. That's fine. She said, no, no, no. She said, no. Well, think about that too. <laughs> um, but the answer to your second question is more complicated. And I think in a way you, you summed up very well what we said in the film, which is indeed what we thought about. But there was a moment, um, which I remember very well in this building, where I, in any event, I think Jan was more phlegmatic at that point. I got very cold feet for exactly the reason you said. I said, what am I doing? Uh, the symbol of wealth, the poorest country in the world, I mean, it's absolutely plainly the, uh, not just the wrong thing to do, it's, it's uh, wholly politically incorrect uh, and pretty inconsiderate and uh, uh, might, uh, might well end badly. So I rung a friend of mine. You haven't read Barrow's Boys, have you? Mm -mm. Oh, Jason, you'd love that. Um, okay. uh, Barrow was the great sort of architect of the big explorers of the 19th century. There's a marvelous book written about it called Barrow's Boys. And the Barrow of the 20th century is a very good friend of mine called Nigel Windsor, who I'm devoted to as his jam. Um, in fact, we're each godmother to each other's children, as I recall. And I said, Nigel, look, I, I, I've, I've got cold feet. Uh, and he, he didn't talk me into it. He tested what I was saying. Mm. But, you know, so he didn't give me a view, didn't say you should or you shouldn't. But he enabled me to work it out by uh, partly him knowing me so well, uh, and partly because he was one of those men who could answer the right questions, was absolutely in sympathy with the issue. He totally got it. And the next thing that happened, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, um, I'll carry on planning. This is a good two years before. And then I fell into company with um, my very old friend. Uh, this is back to Bangladesh, Shaidul Alam, uh, who is the ultimate anti-imperialist and a big figure in human rights, um, uh, as well as a import, very important friend, um, uh, who we'd met in 1992 when we were taking the children around the world. And his response, he said, oh, will, you, will you be my guest, our guest, for the big Cherry Bella Festival of Photography? Because it coincides with when you're going to be in the continent. Uh, we want you to be the guest of honor, and we want to take the role to the head of the procession. This is a human rights lawyer who fights against everything to do with empire and colonialism and so on. Hmm. Um, uh, and there he was saying, what's the problem? And he was right. It wasn't just not a problem. It was a piece of magic because it opened all these doors and enabled all these conversations and created so many friendships. 
Um, and the trick, I'm sure, is that while rose is a symbol of wealth, this rose is battered. Yeah. You can almost see it. It's just outside the door there. Um, a rose is a, is a battered old car that clearly has worked for its living. It's not mm -hmm. an aristocrat poncing about with a nice postcode, posh coat of paint. Um, it's a car that's out there carrying the straw to thatch the roof and carrying the children on the running board and, and uh, planks of wood on the roof rack and all that sort of stuff. And I think that that was the the framework that enabled it to, to uh, the framework in terms of the impression it made. That mm. was the framework which made it work. Yeah, this is a car that's been in your family for many years, correct? I mean... Yeah, my dad bought it in 1959. I think that's a, an important point because I remember when you got into that and, and hearing that you didn't use the car in the way that most people would imagine a Rolls Royce being used yeah. with the, you know, the yeah. white gloves and, you know, Paul, yeah, no. like you said, you're, you're loading <laughs> things up in the front. You're probably maybe the only ones in the world treating the car that way. There are one or two others. But no, you're right. And, and of course, that's the way we, were, we grew up in it. But the magic of the car for us as children was you could ride the wind on the running board. <laughs> and there's nice elements of risk. You might fall off, might get yeah. run over, um, uh, but you hung on tight. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, and it never occurred to us it was a symbol of wealth. It was just a car with a running board, and it had an angel. I mean, what 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 magic a car to have an angel? I remember as a child thinking that was just extraordinary, and we could unscrew it and put it back on. <laughs> <laughs> driving in India, though, driving a big car like that, an old car, a car that you can't easily find parts for. That to me, I imagine that was one of the huge sort of considerations going into this. It was a consideration, but it, it it was never a discouragement. It wasn't like the yeah. colonial issue that we just talked about. Um, what we did was um, <laughs> uh, there's a Rolls Royce club, which at that, that state, that's how I was a member of, uh, and I rung them up and they said we got the Indian members, and they 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 had this, uh, they had six, and they gave me the, God, you wouldn't do this now, would you? They gave me his email, <laughs> and I wrote to him, uh, and he said, oh, he said I'm going to be in London. And I'm, uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, he said, uh, "Let's go and have lunch." So Jan and I had lunch with him and his wife in the in the, um, the British Museum, that little that wonderful restaurant at the top of the tower. Mm -hmm. uh, and he just loved the idea. And he said, "Okay, I know all the best mechanics in India. There are six of them." He said, uh, "And I'll give you all of the numbers. You tell them what you're doing, and the nearest one you're at when you break down, they'll come and rescue you." Mm -hmm. uh, in the event we didn't need it, but we had all go. their numbers. Preparation. Preparation, a risk right. assessment, and <laughs> what measures to take to to uh, to deal with it if it happened. Yeah, well, there are adventures and misadventures along the way. I don't want to spoil them because I, I I do encourage people to check out the movie. I guess I'm just wondering for you and Jan, what did this trip do for your relationship? We've had such a good relationship all our life. I, I, it would be wrong to say it in it improved it or changed it. Um, but it was a, um, a, a general risk control across when I say this. Um, uh, but it was a great time for us to just be on our own and to, uh, uh, and to have what was my famous phrase that Jan always laughs about. Um, uh, companionable silence. Because you're driving for uh, God, countless hours, countless yeah. miles. It was actually 8,000 miles, not 5,000. My wow. lovely, the lovely filmmaker got that wrong. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were change it, but it's too late. <laughs> that's not just sort of passive driving either. There, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, it's it's tiring driving. It's like the, I have to be on concentrating all the time because anything can happen at any moment. That's true, Jason. But the interesting thing about driving in India, um, which is different from not anywhere else, but it's different from Europe, 
uh, is that you're, you have to anticipate uh, different risks than you do in England. Uh, uh, and those risks are that there's no real sort of rule about driving on one side of the road or the other. So you've got people coming in the opposite direction uh, and then you've got bullet carts and you've got rickshaws and you've got pedestrians and street stalls. And, uh, and so Jan was the a very necessary second pair of eyes. And yeah. she'd be anticipating what the car in front uh, of the car in front would do. And I concentrated on the car in front. The head-on collision you avoid, that was... That was pretty terrifying. It was. You want to talk about that moment? Does that still haunt you? It doesn't haunt me. I I, I, I haven't forgotten it, which is a slightly, slightly no. different point. Um, no, I just thought that I was just being very silly. I was I was not uh, assessing the risk properly. And yeah. I was too close behind a truck, and I couldn't see what was in front of him, and he was overtaking. That was just bad practice. Mm. Um, it was a close call. I didn't. I probably, I think I did run as close it was, but it was when uh, Oliver, who was uh, riding a, um, a motorcycle behind, what was he on? He was on a, a famous Indian motorcycle. They're Vincent, aren't they? Um, uh, and he was riding a Vincent behind, and he pulled up after that, and he and made me stop and said, Roop, you, you just about nearly wrecked my film. You would have been dead, and then what would I have done? <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe in fate? Fate. Uh as in that you avoided that head-on collision because it was meant to be avoided in some way. I've never really thought about that, whether I believe in fate or not. I think probably probably not. I mean, uh, obviously, the luck was on my side and the Almighty was looking after us, and, mm. uh, and here I am. But no, I think the answer is probably no to that question. Yeah. Do faith, you, I think, is another one. Well, I, I wanted to ask about that because India is known as a place with... There's a lot of spirituality, let's say, yeah. within the country. Is that a part of your connection with India? Do you have a spiritual connection with the country as well? I don't think in the way that I think you're probably um, thinking when you ask that question. I was never, um, uh, I never went to India to go to an ashram or to go and contemplate uh, the, the next world um, uh, in the way that, say, George Harrison did and, and uh, some of the other figures who are our sort of cultural leaders at, at that time. Right. Um, uh, but I like the fact that they went there to do that. I thought, you know, I, I, I recognized that that, that for, for them worked and that India had uh, this dimension to its cultural and religious life uh, that really mattered to a lot of people. Uh, uh, and I enjoyed the fact it was there. I was never really into it myself, uh, but I did very much like the fact that it was part of the cultural landscape. Can you talk about the the people there? You mentioned, you know, having so many wonderful conversations and connections, but I mean, just as a traveler, can you bring us there and what that what that was like for you on the day to day? How how the I, people I think are the wonderful and, thing about the Rose uh, journey in particular, but I think all the journeys we made there and we've made a good many, is that the the way in which you present yourself and the Rose is an easy option on that front, um, creates conversations. Uh, arouses interests, uh, sparks questions, um, and one of the wonderful things about the the Indian subcontinent is the way that th these conversations just arise out of thin air. Uh, whether it's at a street stall, uh, ordering your roti and dal, or negotiating to buy uh, something in the marketplace, um, or filling up with petrol, somehow the conversations just seem to sort of happen. Maybe it's the way we look, or maybe it was the roles, or when we were younger, traveling with a rucksack, 
somehow these conversations happened. And I do think there is a particularly special bond. People laugh at me for saying this, but I still say it, and I still believe it, between the British and the Indians. Uh, uh, that's oftentimes dismissed as a, as a figment of the uh, imagination of, from, from, uh, or of the imagination of the empire. Mm. Um, uh, but you know, I remember my father talking about this too. He felt that he had a very, some very special friends uh, that he made when he was in India. Uh, uh, and I always felt that, that, that there's an ease of relationship, almost a common sense of humor. And that was very much for me a part of the of the magic of India. And, and I still, you know, we were there four, three or four months ago, and I still recall wonderful conversations just out of the blue with, you know, a guide or somebody you've met or somebody you sat next door to in a, a restaurant. Um, uh, and um, that somehow that happens. Does it happen more in India than anywhere else? I'm not sure it does, but I, uh, maybe I just like to think it does. I imagine, you know, just on the journey, you were in a lot of rural places. Can you tell us a bit about the rural areas versus the urban areas there? Our experience in rural areas was um, uh, very much enriched by driving in the roads. They, it was always um, uh, an attraction. Uh, 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 never did it uh, attract, as far as you could tell, any resentment. Particularly when it when it broke down, or when, no, it didn't much break down. We all, we lost the exhaust pipe three or four times in the journey, uh, <laughs> and um, ripped, ripped out by a rock or whatever it was. Uh, uh, that the only place you'd go was the local blacksmiths, and there's a blacksmith in every village in India, on the water, and uh, and, um, uh, and of course while you were there, everybody came to see because this this was a, a an old English car. They didn't necessarily know it was a Rolls. Rolls is not a a mark that's known in rural India, uh, particularly, they yeah. they knew it was old, um, uh, and of course we were white and European, so they, you know, a lot of people clustered around and conversations began, and uh, everybody brought us tea and little bits and pieces to eat, and then they invited us to their homes, uh, while the blacksmiths got on with fixing the exhaust pipe, and we had some wonderful moments uh, when the car broke down. In many ways, it was the well, some of the great moments of the journey. Um, and so breaking down became a sort of not just a thing you didn't mind about. It was oh great, you know. I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's the best attitude to have. You know, I, I remember I was on my honeymoon and we we had a blown out tire and we had to get replaced. And we're like, all right, well, let's go play mini golf and have a meal. And you know, we just had a great day. And yeah. that's the that's no, great. You can do that anywhere in the world, right? You can bring a good attitude anywhere in the world. No, you're quite. Quite right, Justin. <laughs> and that is uh, that is a secret. It's a secret of traveling, roles or no roles. Um, uh, 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 once you, you you settle that, whatever. <laughs> it's a rather good story that um, I, I heard a speech by Paul McCartney last week, week before, uh, at, a, at an institution I'm a bit involved with, uh, and he told us about how they came off the road in the winter of '63 in a snowstorm, that big winter. You probably don't know, but there was a. The winter of 63 was the coldest winter in my life. Uh, and it came off the new, the then new M1 and skidded to a halt. Uh, and the snowstorm, nobody knew where they were there. There were just the four Beatles on the way back to Liverpool, 63, before they were internationally known, or as they were becoming. Uh, and they got out of the car, one of them said, um, what, what the hell do we do now? <laughs> and Ringo Starr, so Paul McCartney said, um, something will happen. And he turned to the graduates who he was talking to uh, and said, when things go wrong, 
don't worry, something will happen. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was a, I, I love that story because it's undramatic and it's simple and it's got a, a strong point to it. Yeah. It's like a, it's a Zen Cohen for travelers in a way, right? Yeah. Something will happen. <laughs> exactly. Maybe bad, maybe good. Let's see. <laughs> there you go. You've got a, a new motto to travel with whoever's listening to this, you know, something will happen. That's a, I love that attitude. It's great. In terms of making this a film, I'm just curious. This is, you know, you're, you're not, you're not coming from Hollywood or anything, Rupert. I mean, you know, how does this, how does this idea turn into a film produced by oh, well, Sharon no, Stone no, and you know, all this, how did, how did uh, this happen? Uh, it's entirely down to Oliver McGarvey, uh, young Canadian guy, uh, our godson. So we've known him since he was naught. Uh, he grew up quite a bit at this place where he lived in the middle of nowhere in the Sussex Hills. Actually, told us on the journey, really, he said, I, when I was growing up, he said, you and my dad were always telling bear stories because they both loved the Canadian backwards. Okay. Uh, and uh, they were all sort of based in some truth that might have happened a long time ago, but you know, they get taller as the years went on. And, and he said, as a child, he used to love these stories, and I grew up wanting to tell stories. Uh, and then he, then he came into touch with cameras. So he, was, he went to film school in Paris, and uh, as he left the film school, uh, he'd heard what we were doing, and he rung us up and said, um, uh, uh, I said, Rupi, are you, are you really going to do this journey? And I said, well, yeah, I think we probably are. And he said, well, I'm going to film it. And I said, well, but we really don't want to be filmed. In fact, I turned down two independent production companies because I'm a media lawyer. You know, the word got out. Okay. Yeah. People started coming up and saying, you know, maybe you do a film for BBC or Channel for whatever. Uh, and Jan particularly didn't want to be filmed, and I wasn't very keen either. So we just said no. And then we had a godson. Well, you can't say no to a godson. <laughs> so he said, well, I'll tell you what, you can come out for two weeks. It'd be lovely to get some nice footage for uh, you know the, for the grandkids who then weren't even thought of, let alone born. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and um, and I said, but there's two rules. Uh, the first rule is we're never doing any retakes because this is an exhibition. It's not making a film. Love it. Uh, and secondly, I'm not doing any voice to camera. If I hear one of these bloody fancy celebrity types talking to the camera after their day on the road, uh, <laughs> and they talk about nothing but themselves. And it, I said, it's so boring. So no voice to camera. No voice right. over narration. And then narration later, that's okay. When we're back. Okay, home. okay. Gotcha. But voice gotcha. to camera, you know, how was it today? Oh, well, we had a marvelous time. Wait, who cares? Yeah, yeah gotcha. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, and so he duly came out. Uh, and he turned up in Udaipur. We, we were there for a week or two before on his motorbike. Uh, and he's such an engaging and I mean, people love Oliver. Uh, 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 and, and he came with us and of course we were now in Trio with an elderly couple as the Times later called us in an article that wrote about one of the things that went wrong um, uh, with this very engaging attractive young Canadian guy <laughs> who's not our son he didn't make sense <laughs> right <laughs> um, anyway uh, uh, and, and we've always loved him and we still love him uh, and so he's kind of just never went home that's great. Did it take you a bit of time to get used to the camera? We didn't take much notice of it, to be honest, Jess. It was no. just it was, it like it was a bit of a fly on the wall documentary. We just did what we did what we did. And right. quite a lot of the footage, I remember thinking, God, I had no idea he was filming that. <laughs> That's what I really liked about it. That's what to me that was shining through. We say 
for example, the reality show, you can just say, well, you're just capturing what's happening. But like, we all know that, you know, yeah. things are storyboarded and they edit it as, you know, as characters Spotlight. and there's all this kind of stuff. And it just seemed like, yeah, they were just really capturing what was happening. And mm. I appreciated the rawness of that. Um, and, you, you know, I must, I must say, I mean, not, not I'm trying to flatter you here, but you're, you've got, you've got the thing, man. You're good on camera. Like you, you, <laughs> you've got the charisma thing going. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm not surprised that other people weren't curious about, um, you know, filming you anyway. So well done. You're very kind. I, I, I'm not sure that's right, but we, we did, we, we, we loved having Oliver along. Uh, uh, he's, he's a great storyteller. We just had a, uh, we became very good companions, uh, and he respected our need for privacy every now and again. And uh, come Christmas, and all the girls, our daughters, came to join us for Christmas, and he disappeared off to Calcutta to stay with a mate, which is why there's nothing, uh, there's no footage around. Uh, it's a very extraordinary Christmas we had in uh, in Assam yeah, with the yeah. three women, and then we reunited in um, reunited in in, in Dhaka. Uh, so he wasn't there for the extraordinary journey we had over the Meghalayan hills. And down past the, the rock mines, and then we got stopped by the border. No, he was there then. He must have joined us in Guwahati. No, he did. He did. Mm. Uh, and then we got stopped at the border. They wouldn't let us in. Yeah. Uh, and he filmed that very, very well. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I was surprised that uh, some of these bureaucratic types were even allowing a camera in the room. You know, sometimes those those characters mm. can get a little yeah. skittish. In those situations, <laughs> you're saying it, but he was so, the customs man at um, uh, mm. what was it called? The border post. I've forgotten what it was called now. Uh, Tannerville. Um, he was he was just so utterly charming. You couldn't you couldn't get cross with him just because he wouldn't let you in because he was just so nice. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, what's so fact, interesting in, about in people. Book on, you have these in characters. The book on Bangladesh, you... She actually gets a credit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He'll never see it. <laughs> and he probably can't read English anyway. Um, Just like, I want to be really angry with you right now, but you're you're too damn nice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, of well, course, when you're in their hands, you can't fall out with them. Yeah. You have, no. you have to make it work. It's much better to take the sort of friendly, laid-back approach, I feel, in those situations. Yeah. You know, you may not have wanted the movie cameras around, but it seems like you've had a love of photography, and film, uh, filming, uh, I guess, shooting mm. pictures for a long time. I'm curious what you love about photography as a medium. You have the book now, The Homage mm -hmm. to Bangladesh, which is uh, a portrayal of, of your 30-year love affair with Bangladesh. Talk about your photography and why this book was important for you to, to make and put together. My mother had a darkroom in the, 30, in the, in the 30s, which was very rare then, I think. Um, and although she never had one when uh, when I was born, uh, uh, I was aware of it, and I and the equipment was still around. So that sort of, I guess it inf informed me that photography was a thing. Yeah. And I I had a camera at a very early age, little one of those little Duoflex cameras with a little tiny prints about two inches square that it used to produce. Um, so it was sort of around, and then uh, I found after I'd been traveling on my own, when I did take quite a few photographs. I then found that, that the only excuse I had for getting on expeditions with well-known explorers was if I held myself out uh, entirely falsely as a photographer. And they couldn't check you up in those days because there was no online stuff to look at. Um, uh, so they had to take your you on trust. And I found myself on a, a major expedition 
uh, to the South Pacific in 1979 as the expedition photographer or one of them. Wow. Uh, uh, and so that that sort of shaped me up. But I spent a long time with the the, the major overall expedition photographer, became a good friend. Uh, and when I got back, I found that I was um, uh, 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 Jan and I then met, and we continued our journey together. I was on the expedition for six months. Uh, when I got back, I found that I could uh, write articles and I uh, had pictures to illustrate them. So I made a living as a journalist for about a year, year and a half, I suppose. Okay. Um, uh, and then, then I went back to being a lawyer after that. But I went on being a journalist all that time. And then I got a call uh, from uh, the head of the, uh, uh, of the British Association of Picture Libraries, which is, represents all the, the then vast number of photographic agencies that supplied the, uh, supplied the world with images. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he said, look, you're the only lawyer I know who's also a photographer. Will you will you be photographer to the associ- uh, lawyer to the association? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that way, I came to represent a lot of the great photographers of of that time. Wow! Uh, and indeed, I still I'm doing a case at the moment for one of the major photographic galleries in London. But copyright became uh, a major a major thing for me professionally, and I was one of the very few lawyers, probably the only lawyer who was also in the market uh, as a photographer. So right. I understood right. why images were important, how they worked, what it was that a publisher was looking for, in what format he wanted it. Uh, so when the case came in, I didn't need to be informed about the trade practice. I knew it. Right. It sounds like you found the perfect little niche for yeah for your career there. I, yeah. These are all, uh, I don't want to say they're two worlds because there's many worlds. It's, 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 you know, shades of gray, but you could have mm. gone in, in a totally different direction and as opposed to having what what i guess most people would perceive as working as a lawyer would be like the stable sort of regular job good income you get your pay as opposed to you know say taking this expedition that you took in in 79 and running with that and becoming like a national geographic photographer and making that your whole career instead of you know practicing law i was i was just wondering for you did you ever have any internal debates about taking like the journalism thing or your photography and running with that and just leaving the lawyer stuff behind? Or I guess I'm also fishing for some advice here for anybody listening that's maybe having that exact dilemma. If it was a dilemma for you. That's not a very, very good question. Just the answer is looking back on it. I think if there had been an opening for me to become a sufficiently well-known photographer that I could make a living at it, and there's very few of those around even then, uh, then uh, I might have been drawn to it, but the difficulty always was, and it was the same thing with other careers that I looked at and rejected. Yeah. Um, uh, family life was also critically important to me, even even before um, uh, I'd met Jan, or at least after we'd met, but we didn't know each other. Yeah. Um, and I remember... So I'm taking your question in a slightly different direction, but I'll come back to the no, main no. point. No, no, take it in any direction uh, you want. <laughs> um, uh, a major turning point for me in in my sort of, in dealing with that issue, what, what sort of person did I want to be? What sort of life did I want to lead? What were my most important values? Um, uh, was um, at the end of a job in the Great Sandy Desert when I was, I was a juggy. Most people don't know what juggies are, but I was the chap who laid the geophones for the dynamite crew which would then uh, send the explosion, the sound down the center of the earth uh, uh, to the earth's crust 
uh, and the length of time you take up to take to came up gave you the shape of the cross, which is where the oil was. Mm. And I'm rather embarrassed to admit. Um, and at the end of that job, the foreman, who was a great guy, said, "Look, uh, come down to New Zealand for our next job offshore." Uh, an oil rig, um, and after that, I'd like to send you to university to do a degree in geology, and then you can join the company, and the future is golden. It was it wasn't a massive company, but it was a a good up and thrusting company at a at a time when minerals were huge. They didn't have the issues that they now have. Uh, that was pretty tempting, uh, but I remember absolutely clearly thinking that would be totally incompatible with family life. Mm. Uh, uh, and so I, I said no. I had one, one day to decide. Wow! Well, the, camp, okay. the camp, the camp was wrapping up, yeah. uh, and it was a pretty wild scene. It was six hundred miles from anywhere in the middle of the Great Sandy. There was some pretty wild men. Uh, so I said no, and I went on. I hitchhiked uh, back home. It took me six months to get back. This was nineteen sixty nine, <laughs> um, uh, and um, <laughs> so that established my mind. What was most important? When the photography thing came up, there was never really an option because it was such a difficult market to break into. Um, and by then, I was, um, uh, or shortly after, I was acting for Magnum, the great photographic agency. I was their lawyer for 25 years. And I saw these guys coming back with these fantastic images, the Don McCullens and the uh, Jones Griffiths and Elliot Erwitt, the amazing photographers of that generation. And I wanted to be like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it would not have been compatible with family life. And by then, I did have a family. Yeah. So there was never really an option. It was just a lovely dream. Uh, and the third time the same issue came up, so I'm trying to answer your question. I, did, I got into my head that um, I wanted to, to, to become a member of parliament. Uh, my grandfather was an MP and my other ancestors had been in parliament for going way, way back. Um, and I thought this was a natural thing for me. Uh, and, and so I started inquiring about it. I ended up having lunch with an MP who I had acted for in a libel action. I was a libel lawyer then, acting for MPs and newspapers and things. Um, and uh, and I said, tell me, give me some advice. How does it work with family life? At the end of lunch, it was off the agenda. <laughs> you got the reality of it. <laughs> yeah. I well, my priority was always my family life, my home life had to be allowed yeah. to flourish. Uh, and a career that was not compatible with that. Um, uh, however engaging, attractive, charismatic, diverting, exciting it might be, it wasn't going to happen. That's great advice. You know, just consider the lifestyle first that, that you want to have. Mm. And if these things, if these pieces or these careers or these ideas don't fit into that, then mm. it's easy. It's just much easier to write them off. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee? every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, 
you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. The the oh, book must be really it must be really rewarding to have this book out on, on a variety of levels. Can you just talk about putting it together and what, what it means to you? Um Jason, again, another lovely question. You're absolutely right. It's been very rewarding, not least because I always saw myself as um, a guy who took photographs, who loved taking photographs, and occasionally took a good one. Uh, and all my contact was by, with, um, like, it, in uh, going back to Bangladesh all those times to the Festival of Photography, um, I did have one exhibition, which was actually very well reviewed. Yeah. Um, uh, to my amazement, first time mm-hmm. somebody said, this guy knows how to take photographs. This is... What, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I suppose. Uh, and then a magic moment came, which is in the film, uh, which still makes me laugh, uh, uh, when a wonderful curator, a very uh, brilliant curator, one of the best in the world, called Robert Pledge, who I love, uh, he's New York, founder of um, uh, uh, Contact Images, um, uh, quite a well-known guy. He said, okay, he was teaching it uh, in, in the festival. He said, people bring your photographs and I'll tell you what you might do. Whether you're any good, he didn't put it quite like that. I thought this is my moment, <laughs> <laughs> and I brought a few prints with me from home, and I put them in front of him. And, and everyone, because I'm quite a well-known guy in Bangladesh, because I also teach there, and, and, and I stand out a bit because I'm English. Um, uh, uh, so everybody sort of came to listen, <laughs> and he looked at these, and I could see it wasn't going well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, I must have had the wrong prints, but anyway, he said, "Ruben," he said, he said. Uh, just one thing, I'm, and I'm so glad you showed me these pictures. I just want to tell you, you're a better lawyer than you are a photographer. Oh. <laughs> and, and it wasn't what I wanted to hear, but everybody laughed because it was a, he did it so nicely. Yeah. Um, uh, and so to be able to produce this book 20 years later, um, uh, when I can now say, well, actually, maybe, yeah. maybe <laughs> I'm nearly as good a photographer as I am a lawyer. That's a good, that, that to me was a very satisfying moment. That's great. I mean, I, I know what you described was sort of like a lighthearted moment, but at the same time, yeah, it's like okay, you can say you can get discouraged, or you you can say, well, let me just keep working on my craft, and yeah, and just on, you know, yeah. this is something I love. Yeah. I'm just going to keep going with this, and in the end, yeah, look what and, you got. And, yeah. and I think it's a lot to do with the fact uh, that uh, you know I, I've always operated in film. That's not quite true. I, I've had a digital camera. I've never really got on with it terribly well. And I, I still have it. It's behind me now. But for black and white photography, um, from film to work, the technology is crucial. And uh, be, uh, d- the darkroom expertise is another whole field of human endeavor. Uh, and I, I got 
I was never in the same class as the as the great guys. I could I could produce a print uh, if it was a reasonably good negative. Um, but I realized if I was going to get the, the book on Bangladesh out, I needed to, uh, to have beside me a person who really knew how to make the best of an image. And I had a wonderful client called Simon, Simon Mooney, and I'll tell him to listen to this when it comes out. Um, uh, and I acted for him. He had a bit of a problem with the, uh, the, the people he was working for. And we sorted it out. And we, we came first, as it were. Uh, and we became good friends. Um, uh, and he then offered to help me out with some of my um, uh, with the uh, the the scanning and then the cleaning up and the adjusting of the image so that it is its best. And you can see the value of his work so clearly in the book. Uh, and the publisher did a very good job, Unicorn, uh, at printing it. It was printed in Turkey, and Jan and I went out to Turkey to to watch the printing and make certain it was what we wanted. And the blacks were black and the greys and the silvers were just the right shade of grey and silver. Mm, right. Uh, uh, and so without that team of uh, the publishers and the printers and the um, uh, the chap who really, the person who really makes the image come alive and sing, yeah. uh, uh, and I can't, I'm not clever enough to do that. Um, and so the teamwork element was a, also a piece of magic. And took a lot of time. The mm. hours we spent in the in the table just over there, Simon and I, choosing the images, trying to work out which one was going to tell the story best. Was it going to be a good technical enough image? Can we get rid of those scratches? Uh, marvelous stuff. Yeah, and all with how, curtains drawn. How has it been for you being seeing these creative projects come to life over the last years? Oh, very magical. Just yeah. Very magical. Now, and having the book on Bangladesh, um, uh, and people saying to me, like you just sort of said, um, uh, we had the editor down for a magazine yesterday to come and uh, who's doing a big piece on the book, uh, and he said, you know, you're a really great photographer, and I thought, God, I never thought I'd hear that said. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> man! That's so great. So that, that was it. That was very magical. And now I, I've, and of course, I've got a quarter million images. And, yeah. and only 25,000 of them were in Bangladesh. So right. I, I've got my work cut out before I die to get the, the best of the rest out. Well, speaking of that, I mean, is the, is the leaving a legacy, uh, leaving some things like that important to you? What does that mean to you? It, it, it is important. Uh, and it means a lot. And I talk about it a lot. And I use that word legacy. Um, so another very good question. Um, uh, I'm a trustee of the Magnum Foundation, and we had a meeting uh, with, uh, you probably won't know these names, uh, with Martin Parr uh, in his uh, gallery and place in Bristol. Uh, uh, and he was showing us around um, his gallery and his workspace. Uh, we went into the cold room where he keeps all his negatives. And I was with a chap called David Hurd, who's another Magnum photographer who I love. And I said, David, I said, how many photographs have you taken in your life? And he said, um, yeah, I don't know, Rupert. He said probably, probably three or four million. And I said, "Go on." I said, "What, what do you? How many do you digitize? Because it takes so long." And he said, uh, "He said one percent, maximum one percent mm. of all the images. It's amazing photographers taken." Yeah. And I said, uh, uh, "Have you done it?" He said, "Yes." He said, "What do you do now?" He said, "I'm I'm editing the one percent down to half percent." Uh, uh, and uh, and I said, "What's your legacy?" And he said, "I'm going to leave." Uh, uh, I'm creating 400 prints, three copies of each. 
that were this is slightly me interpreting what I think he said because this is what I want to do. Yeah. So it, it's probably not an accurate quote from him, uh, but it sort of answers uh, putting it in my own language. What I want to do is to create, let's say, three hundred prints of the images that tell the story of the world as I've seen it, right from the beginning when I was taking images. Mm. Um, uh, uh, that I want other people to say, this is what I saw. This right. is what I bore witness to. Uh, this, if you like, is my testament. And choosing those 300 is a very tricky task because so many different factors come in. Is it family? Um, is it the excitement of life on the road? Is it some moment I've captured uh, of, of two people communicating when the wind was blowing in the right way and the clothes were flowing that way? And uh, Or is it human grief, human hardship? Uh, what is it that I want to say about the world? So it wow. does make me think, what have I seen and what do I want to pass on? Wow, what a beautiful way to to minimize that in a way like you did to kind of create some rules around it saying it's going to be 300 prints, right? Mm-hmm. And and using that framework, I suppose you call it, as an opportunity to reflect, I guess, and 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 put across what is meaningful to you and and why and really be thoughtful about it as opposed to just kind of saying like, well, here, you know, here's a folder with all the pictures I've taken, you know, from around. This is this is my legacy. Just kind of being really, I guess, I suppose being intentional with your legacy or with this part of Mm -hmm. it. I think that's quite a beautiful gift to not only people that you can pass that down to, but also to yourself in this moment right now, having the opportunity to to weigh these questions and use these images as a representation of uh how you see the world. Thank you. Those, those are good thoughts. The word you haven't used, which I, uh, I've just written an article for the, um, for N Photo, the, the Nikon magazine. Uh, uh, and they wanted me to talk about uh, my relationship with the camera. Yeah. Uh, 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 and so I said, well, actually, I, the, I use FM2s, which is the old analog camera uh, that I was given in uh, 1982. So the, 40 years old, these cameras. Yeah, okay. Uh, 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 and, and I said, I've also got a Nikon, uh, uh, what is it, a Z6, quite a posh uh, digital camera. Um, but I said, I'd, actually, I, I don't really get on with it. And the reason I don't, and this goes back to the word that uh, I, I would use in this framework, um, is because it doesn't. Digital cameras are totally undisciplined. And discipline is the key. Mm. The digital camera, you, you take 50 cop pictures of one scene one of them is bound to be a good picture it can't almost fail to be a good picture with an analog camera you take one or two because you've only got 36 in the roll and you're in the bush miles many well you've only got 10 rolls of film so you have to choose your images carefully and choose your moments carefully and there has to be the instant moment that matters if you're gonna if it's gonna the image is gonna say what you have in mind for it to say when you take it and that discipline um, extends right through to the same principle. If you choose, I've got a quarter of a million images or whatever it is, uh, I'm going to choose 300. And actually, probably, I should really only choose 100 because who's going to look through 300 images to say what did Rupert Gray think about when he was alive? You know? uh, and I could, I could actually choose five that, that, that are the most important. It's that, that concept of discipline uh, which is not a popular word at the moment. It's not a word that's part of most people's lexicon. 
because it runs contrary to the spirit of the age, which is uh, excessive, and you have everything you want because it's all online and all on the internet. You can get it whenever you want. Uh, and the the word discipline is one that needs to come back into fashion. Well, whether it's creative pursuits or online businesses or whatever you want to call it, yeah. I think discipline is the, it underpins a lot of it is where a lot of success comes from because you mm. can't have success without consistency and discipline in many ways. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, how do you want to be remembered? Say, say somebody's looking at these images 50 years from now. I think the phrase I would use, what I'd like people to say at my funeral service, at my uh, memorial service, if there is such a thing, um, uh, is that I was a Renaissance man. <laughs> nice. You are that, indeed. <laughs> well, like, if I had an aspiration, that's, that's what I'd say. I want to be, uh, uh, wh wh what do we mean by Benesor's man? Uh, somebody who understood and encompassed many different aspects of uh, human condition that we, we are, are burdened with, are privileged with. Is that, is that what Renaissance means? It's a very interesting word, and it's we associate it. I think we've created a wonderful image around it because that's when the great yeah. artists lived and, and changed our landscape. Uh, and a lot of those great artists did uh, so many different aspects of life. Yeah. Um, they were explorers, artists, thinkers, writers, um, uh, lovers, um, madmen. I mean, they just encompassed it all. <laughs> yeah. I think to me it means it's uh, the the positivity around that word would be to, to me is the, is a person who is so curious that they, they need to figure things out and, and they're able to have, I suppose, have the discipline to dive in and, and become maybe not just what the, in some of those Renaissance artists case world-class, but I don't think mm. to be a Renaissance person, you need to be world-class at everything. It's more about, you know, exactly being, Proficient at many di different disciplines. Yeah, uh, uh, spot on, Jason. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not about being the best in class uh, or famous or anything like that. It's about embracing. It's about biting off more than you can chew and chewing like fuck. Actually, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bringing it back to the beginning. <laughs> well, I well we can end on that. I guess I, I really appreciate your time today. I would say you know I haven't known you for long, and we're just getting to know each other here and having d dived into your work a bit and watching the film and everything like that. But I, I would add, you know, as far as a, your, your memorial service years from now or whatever, you seem like a, somebody who's always lived true to themselves. And I think that's a very nice compliment. I think that's an important, an important part of life. Really. If you can do that. It's not, not always an easy thing to do. No, I think you're right. And I think uh, the other word that springs uh, back into play, I think there is, uh, is discipline being, not discipline, it's not, it's a funny word, discipline, over to school. Uh, clarity about the direction of travel. Uh, being diverted, of course, because diversions are the very stuff of life. But the ultimate direction of travel um, needs to have an element of consistency about it, I think. Mm. And the sense of continuity with, uh, the past of your own life, and and possibly to some extent the past of your, of, of your um, of the wider life of your friends and also your ancestors or your 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 immediate forebears, um, uh, and maintaining the values that they handed down to you, and in turn handing them down to the next generation, which uh, we we've tried to do with our three daughters, and now are trying with the grandchildren. Right. Yeah. How's it been to have the grandkids? Oh, just. 
I mean, as everybody says, it's a, it's another whole ball game. <laughs> <laughs> you got any parenting advice for me? You've been through it. I'm in the thick of it. Give them freedom to make their mistakes and then pick them up afterwards. Right. I think would be the main thing I'd say. Okay. And they and 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 they will. And you, uh, 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 let them make them. That's what they have to do. That unless it's going to be fatal, you just have to sit back and and. Uh, I remember asking my mother for advice about which of two women I was going out at the time I should marry. <laughs> and because uh, I was sort of a bit, well, I was in love with both. And she said rather fiercely, never, ever ask my advice about about women. But I will give you one bit of advice, she said. And I said, Mama, very gladly, what, what is it? She, she said, don't marry them for their looks, marry them for their voice. It's the, the looks will change all the time, and the voice will remain exactly the same. And it's the first thing you will hear every morning of the rest of your life. <laughs> and it was funny, it was true, and it made a, an underlying point. Awesome. And it uh, made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to link to everything in the show notes, of course, uh, everything we discussed today. And uh, I really appreciate your time, Rupert. It's a joy getting to chat with you. If you have any other parting words of wisdom you want to share, go for it. Now's the time. Otherwise, we'll <laughs> I, let you get, get on about your day. <laughs> I, look, I, I think I've prattled on enough about words of wisdom. Um, <laughs> no, well, I, my, my New Zealand truckie wins. Wins a day every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes back to just, the New Zealand just, trucker. That's the uh, yeah. that's the motto for uh, for this one. And yeah. uh, something will happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the only other thing I'd add is I think that the the companionship that you have in your life is the the critical factor that enables you to maintain the direction of travel that we referred to earlier on, mm. uh, and that's that's been the the anchor. Uh, Jan's just walked in and she's she's been the anchor point yeah. uh, ever since I was when did we meet 23 or 25 whatever I can't remember now. Um, anyway uh, Jason Good is there anything on a practical note uh, did I send you any pictures do you want any pictures or do you not use pictures no um, yes please send me some pictures we can post them up so people can see some of your photography um, and uh, yeah if you've got some pictures of you guys out there on your journey together and then also any of the pictures you want to share from the book or anything like that okay i'll i'll um, uh, uh, i'll send over uh, i'll send you what sort of half a dozen sort of thing okay thank you very much for your time and it was a pleasure chatting with you uh just my much enjoy chatting with you and if you're ever passing by through sussex you'd be extremely welcome here for a glass of wine you better be careful because i'll take you up on that i'll be sleeping in that library reading those books all night <laughs> yeah, you can do that. <laughs> thank you. Jason, thank you. There you have it. I want to thank Rupert for stopping by the show. Thank you so much for listening. I wonder, did this inspire you to take your own unusual journey through a foreign land? Perhaps. I would love to hear if it did. And speaking of checking in, you can always hit me up. Jason at zero to travel.com is my email. I mentioned at the top. Offering up some accountability. Sometimes I get emails from listeners that are just wanting to share the things that they're going to be doing, the travel plans they have, not necessarily the travels they're on. They might be working towards travel. And I think this can be helpful. So I'm just offering this up to you. If you need somebody to share your idea with or your intention with, and if just sending me an email, if I can be that person, where you're just going to say, hey, here's my intention, and this is what I'm working towards. I just want to put it out <laughs> to the universe, to the world, to somebody, and let them know to make this real. Here you go. I got your back. 
I'll give you that accountability. You've got it. Here was one I got from Claudia who sent me a note. She said, Hi, Jason. My name's Claudia. I just started listening to your podcast a couple months ago to remind myself that travel is a priority for me and listening to yours and other stories and tips for travel and tips for places to visit has kept that fire burning. I've had a lot of travel in my life and it's been my dream for six years to move to Europe and travel since I did study abroad in Rome in college. I'm on my path now that will get me there soon and I can't wait to send you an email in the future saying, Hey, Jason, I'm about to move abroad. I did it. And she goes on to say some uh, very nice things about the podcast. So anyway, I I just wanted to give you a shout out here, Claudia, because you have the intention, you're working towards it. That's awesome. And I want this community to be a place where we can encourage each other to reach our travel and life goals. And if sending me an email to put your intention out there helps, just do it. Drop me a line anytime. I also have a voicemail box. You can leave me a voicemail. I'll gladly share them here on the show. And just to get you fired up and get the rest of the listeners fired up about, you know, doing the next thing you want to do in life. We're all kind of, no matter how much we've traveled, we're always working towards a new thing, right? Like right now, I'm trying to figure out how could I take a lengthy break with my family, with my kids? How will that work getting them out of school? You know, there's always challenges, no matter how much travel experience you have. There's, there are going to be challenges with fitting travel into your life. And I think it helps to just kind of put the goals out there and make them real and talk about them and and take them seriously. Take your dreams seriously. Something we've talked about on the show before. I think that's a really important thing to do. Okay, that's enough. You probably can tell I've had a lot of coffee, so I'm, I'm going to finish this up now with a quote from none other than Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, since we were spending a lot of time in India today, why not Mahatma Gandhi? And he said, quote, in a gentle way, you can shake the world. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. What words? I'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.